The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Revelation chapter 2. If you are new and you're not sure where that is in your Bible, it is the very last book of the New Testament. So if you go right to the back, you'll find the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. We are now in a third week of a series as we're looking at these seven churches in Revelation. Just a quick reminder or a catch-up if you've missed any of the last two weeks. These are churches that existed real historical churches about 2,000 years ago, and the apostle John, in a vision, received these words from Jesus that he was then instructed to give to these churches. The churches existed in what is today modern-day Turkey. Back then, it would have been known as the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. And these, these words and these addresses, while specific to local congregations from thousands of years ago, are still so applicable to our lives today. As Jesus looks at these churches, compliments them for what they are doing well, but then also holds complaints and encouragements to them in some of the areas that they are falling short. Today, we're looking at the third of these churches, which is the church in the city of Pergamum. Now, if you're like me, sometimes passages like this and even like the the first church we looked at in Ephesus can be kind of frustrating because Sometimes, is there anyone, in, I'm a black and white thinker. Are there any other black and white thinkers? And when you look at these churches, you're like, all right, is this a good church or a bad church? And you're kind of like, well, a little bit of both, right? Is it good? Well, yeah, there's some good to it. Is it bad? Well, yeah, there's some bad to it too. And it's like, well, these churches are complicated. But I, I find rest in that because I think that's not only like a lot of our churches today, maybe even our church, but I find that a lot like myself sometimes, Right? Is there good in me that I think people should emulate and model? Yeah, I think so. Is there bad in me that I hope no one ever finds out about or would ever want to be like? Yeah, that's, that's true too. And we see these of these churches, but we have to hold this tension that the good that Jesus sees in them is actually a good thing, which he is encouraging, but the bad, the things that he calls them out on is very real as well that we should look to learn from so that we also are not called out on these same issues in our lives. And so today we're gonna be in Revelation chapter two, starting at verses 12 through 17. I'll read the text for us as we begin. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
So we have this letter, and like we've been doing, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, we'll kind of walk through, because each of these seven letters, seven sermons, if you would, to these churches has very much similar structure, and it helps us to kind of accentuate the unique messages of each one. So the first thing that we have in each of these is the Christ title. What does Jesus identify himself as? And this is here in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged, the two-edged sword, the sharp two-edged sword. He identifies himself as this, and there's, again, a specific reason that he calls himself this. In their time, in Roman times, and even in the book of Revelation, there's two different kinds of words that are used for sword. There's one word, which is a short, about 18-inch dagger, and it had just a short handle that you could have held with a bit about 18 inches long. That is not this word for sword. The other word for sword, which this church and anyone reading this letter 2,000 years ago would have well known about, was a very large sword. They say the handle would have been about two feet long, and it would have been about a three-foot curved blade, so about a five-foot-long sword that the person is wielding. That is this kind of two-edged sword. This is not a hidden Swiss army knife you have in your back pocket, my friends. It's not like, is Jesus armed or not? No, like, he's got a sword. Like, there's no hiding this sword. Like, it is obvious that he is holding this sword. Now, one, one of the reasons that Jesus has this image of him is this, is Pergamum, was the capital, the, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, right? So Pergamum was the capital city. It's where the, the government officials in the, the, the area of Asia would have lived. And one of the, the sayings of the time of those who hold power is that those who wield power over others, specifically political power, are those who hold the right of the sword. We even see this in Romans chapter 13 when Paul talks about governing officials. He says those who wield the sword. So to have the right of the sword meant that you had power over others. And in the city where the leaders say, we hold the right of the sword, Jesus comes and says, I am the one who holds the sword. Not these people, I am the one who holds the sword. It's a statement of power and authority. It also is referencing back to messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 49. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse two, Looking forward to the Messiah, it says this, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. We're gonna see, you see it in later how that comes even fuller with the mouth being like a sword. A sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And so Jesus is identifying right away as a strong figure, one of power and authority. And in their time, the political leaders were also the judges and one who is a judge as well. So this is a strong statement of who Jesus is. The second thing we see in these passages, the commendation. What are they doing well? What does Jesus see in this church? And it's kind of, it's, it's um, bracketed there by these words dwell. I know where you dwell, and then at the end of verse 13, where Satan dwells. And the city of Pergamum was a hard place to follow Jesus. It was a hard place. Look at, literally, it's described as Satan's throne or where Satan dwells two times. This was an evil City And he doesn't give us a lot of details because the people living there would have been well aware of him. They didn't need to be filled in on all of the oppression and difficulty there was. But in the midst of that, they held fast the name of Jesus and did not deny their faith. That word holding fast is like to grasp hold of. It's like you're falling off a cliff and you grasp hold of it for all your life. It's to seize onto something. Then in the midst of persecution and trouble and hardship, they have held on to Jesus and have not denied Jesus. We talked about last week, if you were here, how there would have been all of these different cultural pressures to, to accentuate and to, excuse me, to 
put forward your life financially, but deny Jesus. And they did not do that. They were standing for Jesus where he was, so much so that we even here have a recorded person who died because they held fast to Jesus. It says there, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Now, I can't wait to meet this guy in heaven because we know nothing else about him except for this. We don't know his story. We don't know how he came to know Jesus. We don't know his family. We don't know who his kids are, if he had kids. We don't know anything about him other than this, that he was one that Jesus says, you've held fast just like this guy has, who chose to die rather than to deny me. This word faithful witness in the book of Revelation describes one other person as a faithful witness, Jesus. So that's how high this kind of, Jesus is a faithful witness and Antipas. He's also my faithful witness. He has, he has held on to me even in the midst of death. And so this is a great commendation. There was trouble, there was persecution, but they've held fast to Jesus. But Jesus has a complaint. But I, in verse 14, I have a few things against you. And to use this, he, he references back, Jesus says, to a story that we find in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 22 to 24 is where this story is referencing. If you're wondering, who are these characters? To the teaching of Balaam and Balak. This is back in the Old Testament at the time where the people of Israel were about to enter into the promised land. And the king, whose name was Balak, was scared because he saw the, the number and he saw the might of the Israelites. And so he hired a prophet named Balaam and he sent Balaam to go curse the people of Israel. We don't have time to go into it. Read it. If you don't think the Bible's funny, go read Numbers 22 to 24. Donkeys start talking. Swords start appearing. Another reason why Jesus identifies himself as one of the sword. A sword plays a main role in the story of Balak and Balaam. But ultimately, what ends up happening is because of Balaam's influence into the people of Israel, he leads them astray into two things, primarily eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And we see this in Numbers chapter 25. Right after the story of Balak and Balaam, it says this, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. That's why in verse 14, he says that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That is the sin of this church in Pergamum, which is related to the exact same thing that the people of Israel did thousands of years earlier when they found themselves about to enter into the promised land. It's interesting, Balaam here actually in the New Testament often is like the prototypical false prophet. Balaam comes up in 2 Peter and in Jude as well as a false prophet like Balaam. So Balaam here is a bad thing that, that you are following the teachings of Balaam. The Nicolaitans who we heard about a couple weeks ago would have taught a similar thing. And so the sin that he's calling them out for is eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. The eating of food sacrificed to idols, now we have to understand this was not an accidental sin that the people were committing. This isn't like there was food sacrificed to idols somewhere over here and then it was taken, it was processed, it was manufactured and someone went into the market, bought food, ate it and someone's like, that was sacrificed to idols. They would have had no idea and suddenly like, oh no, I've, I'm now committing idolatry. No, it's not at all like that. See, what he's referencing here was in the, the religions of the day, specifically in the imperial religion, this is the capital city 
of the Roman province of Asia, where the Rome would have been worshiped, the Caesar would have been worshiped, meals played the most prominent role in their worship. And so when they gathered for worship, food was always forefront amongst it. And he's saying, hey, listen, some of you in these pagan rituals honoring Caesar, calling him Lord, are showing up with everyone else and you're eating right alongside everyone else. You're participating in pagan worship of others. This isn't an accidental sin that people are accidentally eating the wrong thing. This is an intentional act that they are doing. Not only that, but they are practicing sexual immorality. This very easily could have gone right along with these feasts and rituals. Lots of sources outside of the Bible of ancient Roman historians and scholars write about the sexual practices that happened at these feasts that it was well known amongst the area. This was not like a rated G celebration. Let's put it that way. That there were ulterior motives when people went to worship here and sexual practices were promiscuous while the people ate these meals regularly. And he's saying, and some of you go and you regularly participate in that as well. That there's sexual immorality and there is intentional sin, worshiping of other gods that is happening. And this is a complaint that he has. The correction Verse 16, pretty easy. Therefore, repent. One word. Repent. Stop. Turn. Repent. A 180. You're doing this. What do you need to do? You need to not do it and turn the other way, right? Like Jesus is like, I don't need to use a lot of words here. You got to stop it and you got to turn the other way. You got to stop worshiping other gods. You have to turn back towards me. This is the correction that he calls out to this church. Lastly, we see the consequence. What happens if they don't do it? What happens if they do listen to Jesus? First, the negative consequence in verse 16. If not, if you don't do this, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, this is imagery. It's not that Jesus like has this five-foot sword that he opens and comes like shooting out of his mouth. Just as in, if you look at chapter one, Jesus is seen as one whose mouth is like a sword, that a sword is coming from his mouth. It's it's the, the, the words that are coming from, the judgment, the authority, the power that's coming from the words of Jesus. And notice who he's coming to. He's not coming to those outside the church, but he's coming to those who claim the name of Jesus, but are openly living in sin, flaunting it in front of others. And Jesus doesn't have kind things to say to them. I'm coming to make war against you with this sword. That this is not okay that you are living this way. See, God will, with this passage of mind, God will judge sin. He's saying, don't, don't take my patience as a matter of my approval. Don't take the fact that because you've gotten away with it, that this is okay. This is not okay. And I'm being patient with you so you would turn, so you would repent, but I do not approve, but I will not allow this to happen forever. I will judge sin if you don't turn. But if they do, the end of verse 17, to the one who conquers, to the one who has victory, the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the positive is they get two things, hidden manna and a white stone. If you don't know 
the Old Testament, this is super confusing. You're like, what the world is this talking about? All right, so manna, he's playing here in the same period of Israel's history as this first story happened with Balak and Balaam, Back when the people of Israel were in wandering from Egypt, going up to the promised land, they complained, they wanted to go back. And so how did God miraculously provide food for them every single day? He sent manna in the morning. That They didn't work for it, they didn't earn it, God just provided it for them. And so every morning when they went out, there was manna there that they could collect and eat. It said that some of that manna was actually taken and put in the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was. And that hidden manna was, would have referred to that specifically, that that manna that is in the presence of God. And so he's referencing back to this messianic sign that was, this is what God provided for you for. And manna is seen in the New Testament as a looking forward to the reign and rule when Messiah comes to return. And so it's looking, hey, you'll participate with what Messiah, what Jesus is doing forever. And I will give him a white stone. What does the white stone mean? We don't know. I know, right? You were, you were like, oh, he's gonna give us some drink. We don't know. And pages and pages and pages have been written on this. Like literally one of the commentaries was like, there's 17 good options. I'm like, well, that means there's no good options, right? If there's 17, right? So some, some people say that maybe this is referencing one of the stones that the high priest would have worn when he went into the temple to offer sacrifices. Some look back at cultural references and a jury, they would have had a white stone and a black stone. And if the, the verdict was innocent, they would have put forward a white stone. So he's saying, you'll be found innocent. Maybe a combination. The simple fact is we don't exactly know, but this church did. Remember, the Bible is not written to us in 2022. The Bible is written to the, the, the Pergamum then. They knew what this meant, and this was clearly a good thing, a sign of encouragement, of, of messianic hope to come. Notice what's also interesting about the manna is one of their sins that they were practicing in is eating food sacrificed idols. So what does Jesus promise them? A far better food, right? He promises them manna for one day to come. So three lessons from the church of Pergamum. Three lessons for us for today as we look at this church. First is this. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. These are pictures of Jesus that are used throughout the whole Bible and in Revelation as well. The picture of Jesus here to this church in Pergamum is different than how we sometimes think about Jesus. But it's important how we think about Jesus. The, the author and former pastor, A.W. Tozer, many of you know this quote, he wrote this many years ago, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This, this image of God, who we view God to be, shapes so much of your life, your actions, your belief, your character, your motivation, your desires, how you frame God. And I wanna challenge this because this picture of Jesus, I think, pushes a lot of us. It pushes me in ways that we don't naturally think about Jesus. See, the Bible uses not just descriptions, words, but he uses images as well. This idea that I picked of lion and lamb, because a lion, and we understand this for us, a lion is something fierce and strong. It will rip you to part. And a lamb is something that is gentle and kind and cuddly. But Jesus identifies as both. Throughout scripture, he's seen in this, and a couple chapters later in Revelation, he's specifically seen in this, Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so he can open the scrolls and its seven steals. 
And before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. See, it's important and necessary for us to have this picture of Jesus. Is he fierce, strong? Is he judge? Yes. Is he loving and kind and gracious and compassionate? Yes. But so often we don't fit that full picture of Jesus into our minds. See, sometimes it's challenging that we see people or we see things from only one perspective. What Revelation often does is it opens our eyes to this other side of Jesus that so often we choose to ignore in our culture. I remember back when I was in high school, two of my youth leaders, their names were, were Dan and Jeremy, and these were like cool guys. These were the ones who like all the high schoolers, like I wanna be like that guy. They were like tough. They were big. They were muscular. They owned a concrete business. They had facial hair. That's when I was like pushing out like a little peach fuzz. You're like, wow, look at that beard. Like, that's awesome, right? They, these guys were like macho. They were tough. And then you'd see them with like their babies as they're holding them and burping. And you'd see them swaddling their kids and carrying their toddlers and putting, you know, like, well, is this man really tough and hard and, and callous and a hardworking man or is he kind and gentle? And it was like, well, he, he's both. And I for so long saw one that when I saw him with, like, with their kids, I was like, oh my, that's you too? Like, oh, that, that's totally different than what I would have thought. See, the world right now certainly doesn't have a full picture of Jesus like this, and so many Christians don't as well. We love the Jesus that is love, that is grace, that is kindness, that is forgiveness. And that's the Jesus that not only the church, that's the Jesus that our world is like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll take that kind of Jesus. That kind of Jesus is tolerable in our world. But what about the Jesus like this church to Pergamum who comes wielding a sword? One who's just, who's holy, who's pure, who's righteous. What about that kind of Jesus? Is that Jesus true as well? Yes, he is. See, we love the picture of Jesus as our savior, as our friend, as this lamb but so often we don't love this picture of Jesus as a judge, as a warrior, as a lion, but Jesus is both. My prayer is that as we walk through this series in Revelation that our eyes would not just be open to new things, but open to who Jesus truly is because he's revealing things about his character here that we miss out on if we don't take notice to. We must make sure our view of who God is, of who Jesus is, is informed by his word, not by what our culture says is popular. It's really easy to hold on to this popular Jesus and he kind of moves and shifts based on where you live and when you live and who your friends are. But we may, must make sure that the Bible is the one that defines who God is, who Jesus is. That yes, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He is both. The second lesson we see from this church is that right living must go with right belief. Right living or, or right belief right behavior, proper living must go alongside proper belief and understanding of who Jesus is. So you notice this, this commendation to this church, the good is, is genuinely good. Like, hey, you didn't deny your faith. You held on. You, you, even, even one of you to the point of death, like you have, you have held on to this belief in Jesus strong. But at the same time, it's clear God is not pleased when people who claim to be Christians openly and gladly live in sin. Jesus is not pleased that people would live in sin and claim the name of Jesus and not feel bad about it at all. 
we cannot separate Christian behavior from Christian belief. You can't do it. You can't say, I'm gonna believe this, but I'm gonna live. No, they go hand in hand. If you believe this, and what the Bible says is then we must try our best by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a certain way that God has called us to as well. See, the, the early church in this period, in the first 100 to 200 years after Jesus, was known for a few distinctive things that really stood out from Roman culture. And one of them from the very earliest days of the New Testament church was this, that the church was known for how unique it was in its view on sexuality and sexual practices. See, this, this whole idea, what you see taught here in the Bible, isn't like, oh, they, they were just accommodating this to the cultural norms of the day. This was always a countercultural message of what it looked like to follow after Jesus. Sexual morality was a given in their culture. A man didn't have to be faithful to his wife. A man could do whatever he wanted and his wife could do nothing about it. That was the norm in their time. And so the Bible comes along and Jesus comes along, raises this and the church was known for it. And the problem is when it comes to sexual immorality, too often we've allowed our view of God as loving and kind to excuse behavior that clearly contradict the Bible. God is loving and kind, but as we just said, God is also righteous and holy and just as well. Now, before I go any further, I wanna make sure no matter where you are, what your challenges, what your struggles are, anyone is always welcome here any day to come and worship. No one stopped you when you walked onto campus this morning and asked you your struggles or how you identify or what your sins are. But if we claim the name of Jesus, but openly live in a way contrary to scripture, God calls on us for one quick thing, clearly to repent, to turn, to stop. See, it's not just belief. So often when we think of radical sexual Christian practices in our world, we think of, okay, well, well there's so many pressures to, to absolve with all the, the gender debates and sexuality and all of this. There, there's so much, but, but it's not just enough for you as a Christian or for us as a church to hold to what the Bible has taught about Christian sexuality. Our church does that unashamedly. We, why? Because we believe that's the best for human flourishing in our world. That's how God designed the world to be. And when we follow that, it leads to human flourishing in every area of life. But it's not just to believe that, we have to practice that in our own lives. See, the reality is, not only is our society now saturated with sexual immorality, the church is as well. The church is as well. It's hard to get exact statistics on it, but good data that I found says most surveys, 65 to 70% of church-going men say they look at pornography at least once a month. 65 to 70%. The sexual immorality is rampant, not just out there, it's in here too. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they look at pornography regularly in their lives. This isn't a man issue or woman issue, it's both. This isn't a Christian or non-Christian issue. This is an issue that impacts the church. See, we might tell ourselves this lie. Well, this is a private sin. It doesn't hurt anyone which is so ridiculous. Like, yes, it hurts everyone. How do you think the sex trafficking industry is booming because pornography is a bigger business than sports in our country today? Yes, sports, NFL, NBA pales in comparison. The money of pornography, money that flows in, which fuels tra sex trafficking throughout the world. It hurts others. It hurts you. It hurts your family. It hurts Jesus. When we live openly in sin, See, the reason it doesn't shock us, like this sexual immorality probably shocked some of the people because it wasn't easy to hide. 
right? They were going places that everyone knew what happened. But it's easy to hide this kind of sexual immorality, right? Because it's in our homes, it's in our bedrooms, it's in our bathrooms, it's on our phones, it's on our tablets, it's on our computers. No one sees it, no one else knows about it. And if this is you, I don't want you to feel like just condemned and shamed and beaten down. You're not alone in the struggle. But get to the core of why this is true in your life. Why do you go there? What is it that's lacking in Jesus that you're trying to find fulfillment in for a moment, for a few, a few days, moments, hours, minutes of pleasure that, that will someday just turn around and you realize how empty it is right afterwards? What are you lacking in your life? See, the, we titled this, this sermon series, What Would Jesus Say? And I can't help but wonder if Jesus was to come to the church in America where over half of the people gathering for worship are regularly looking at pornography, I can't imagine he would just skip it because here's the thing, Jesus knows. He knows, right? And if we all knew all of these sins of everyone else that was laid bare, we would talk about it more because it would be so obvious, but Jesus does know. I don't think Jesus would look at the church in America and ignore how sexual immorality in our lives is hurting us, it's hurting our witness, and it's hurting our relationship with Jesus. And so if this is true of you, repent. Realize it's wrong and commit to turn, to honor God with your whole life, to following after him. Repent of your sin and walk into the light of what Jesus would have for you. Right living, right following Jesus must go with the right belief of who he is and what he's done for us. Thirdly and lastly, the darkest places, the third lesson to learn from this church is this, the darkest places most need the light of Jesus. The darkest places of our world most need the light of Jesus. Pergamum was a dark place to live, right? Did you see that description there, like in the first couple verses? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You're like, oh yeah, that's where I wanna move. I wanna move to Pergamum, right? Buddy up next, be next our neighbors with Satan, like, that's the reputation of how evil and dark Pergamum is known. I don't know if you realize it, but in some places, that's how people talk about California. Like, maybe if you've lived here your whole life, you don't know it. Maybe you do. But, like, in a lot of places, that, that's how the West Coast and specifically places like the Bay Area are talked about. And what's the easy thing to do? In, in a city like Pergamum, or if you hear last week in Smyrna, where Jesus is like, it's hard and it's gonna get worse. You might die soon. What's the easy thing to do? Run away, right? Get out of here. Notice that he doesn't say this to them. Hey, man, you live where Satan is. You should go to a place that's easier. Like You should really go to a more God-fearing God city and you should dwell there. Notice he doesn't say to run away from the darkness, but he encourages them, hey, it's dark and it's hard and keep holding fast to me in the midst of the darkness. What does it look like to be a Christian in the Bay Area? Invading the darkness with the lights of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a Christian here in this dark place in which we live. As Philippians 2.15 reminds us, that we would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst, right in the middle of, not apart from, right in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. And that's the call that God has on our lives. That's the call that God has on this church. Not to close up and to run away where, man, it'd be somewhere easier where they would actually let us build a bigger building, 
where they would let us do more stuff where like Jesus was just an accepted thing and all our friends were like, oh yeah, Jesus, I love Jesus, I'll come to church with you. Like it'd be a lot easier to move and to go somewhere else, but this is where God has planted us. This is where God has planted you. Will you see your opportunity now that in this dark place, your light can shine bright for Jesus right where you are? Not to look somewhere else and say, man, it would be so much easier. There's people in Texas, people in North Carolina where there's five churches for every five people. Like those other places, man, it'd be so much easier. Maybe it would be, but this is where God's called you. You're here, you're not there. So what if you decided here that the light of Christ would shine through you? See, the vision of Morgan Hill Bible Church, which I love, our vision is this as a church, is we long to see the culture of the South Valley tip toward Jesus. I just love that. Where are we? In one of the darkest places in the U.S., and we want to tip the culture toward Jesus. I love this for a few reasons. One, as we talk about regularly, this is not something that our church alone can do which is why we view the churches and the ministries down the road, not as competition, but they're our partners. We're all in this together. They're not our enemies. They're serving Jesus right alongside with us. But I also love our vision because this, this is something that we can't do unless God does something amazing. Our human talents, our abilities cannot do this. Only God could accomplish this, could take this dark area and move it more towards Jesus. But when we look at scripture, how does God do amazing things? Almost always, he uses people. How does God do amazing things in the world? He uses people to accomplish his amazing things. God could have had the people of Israel walk up to the Red Sea and it just already been parted. And Moses been like, hey, this is cool. Let's just walk through. But what did he do? He used, and used Moses to pardon. God could have just had Jericho crumble when the people of Israel walked. But what did he have him do? He had them walk around and trust and participate in what he was doing. God could have just struck down this Philistine giant. He could have just had a heart attack and died. But what happened? God made a little shepherd boy step up and participate in what God was doing. God could, could have seen this widow dying and just provided her food, but what did he do? He sent Elijah and he fed her through Elijah. Jesus saw 5,000 hungry people and he could have just magically made food appear in their pockets, but what did he do? He had the disciples go and pass out the food for him. See, God wants to do an amazing thing, but God's not just gonna randomly do it. How is he going to? It's gonna be you and it's going to be me that God can do it through. So will you allow your light the light of Jesus to shine through you in this dark place. In the midst of darkness and persecution that I think all of us feel living here, the man, our culture doesn't like us as Christians. It's pushing back against where we stand and it doesn't look like it's getting any better in the future. Do we pack up and run? Or do we say, no, this is where God can use us in the greatest way. This is where God needs me for this season here to shine in the darkness. Like this church of Pergamum has called it, may be hard to do, but it will be worth it if that's where God has called us. God, we thank you. We thank you for reminders like this from this church in Pergamum, for this picture of Jesus, God, of both loving, but also holy, of kind, but also just. God, I pray that we would have this fuller view of who you are. God, I pray that as we look at the dark world that we live in, surrounded by so much, God, that we wouldn't grow to despair, to lose hope, 
but that it would strengthen our resolve day by day, hour by hour, to have the light of Christ shine through our lives. God, we long to see you do something incredible here. We long to see you do a work that can only be said it's because God showed up in Morgan Hill, because God did something in Gilroy. So would you use us, your servants, would you use us, your church, to represent you in such a powerful way that this place is changed for eternity by the power of Jesus in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.